Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combined trad values and an indie spirit. Hello. Hello, and welcome again to the Hopcast Book Show. It is show number 55. Five. Wow. <laughs> we say that every week, don't we? No, we don't. We say 54, 53. Well, something like that. <laughs> welcome to the show. And let us introduce ourselves quickly, and then we'll talk about who's coming up later in the program. But first of all, I'm Adrian Hobart. I'm Rebecca Collins. And together we run Hobeck Books, UK independent publishers of the following four genres. Thrillers, crime, mystery, and suspense. And we've had a bonkers week. It's always a bonkers week, but I'm surprised you've got the energy to to do the show this week. Yeah, I confess I'm feeling a tiny bit delicate today, um, partly through consumption of wine. Yeah. (laughs) And lack of sleep and dancing and general merriment of last night. Yeah, Uh, just to fill in... blanks on that it was your father's and his wife's that's uh, mike and Faye. yeah their ruby wedding anniversary party at a, a, a rather swish golf club outside stafford and uh there was the wonderful lola lamour performing and uh she does uh she's a uh, you know a fan of everything vintage 30s 40s 50s 60s uh great singer and um fan of the, the fashions, lives her life as, as if she's in the 50s. Yeah, so they don't own a TV and they, they do. They Their house is decorated and everything is set up as if it's the 1950s, although they do use the internet. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, she's got a great website, but she doesn't have a TV. So there you go. Anyway, uh, it was a great party and I only crawled in with two of your boys at about 9.30 after our, your car or our car, one of our two cars, one's off the road already. The other one just gave up in the middle of Stockport. Yeah, so yeah, so Josh and I, Josh, the middle boy, the, the one who doesn't like football, uh, we lo- we were lucky enough to get a lift there, and we started drinking <laughs> quite early on. And um, and the middle yeah. boy is how old? Uh, nearly nearly eighteen, approaching eighteen. Oh, ish. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, not not. Long but away. I was I was very impressed though because so um, Lola Lamour. Want part of her act is to get people to join in, um, in some form or other. Yep. And you got up, I did, with Josh, with Josh and my dad. Yes, as three backing singers. <laughs> yeah. On what was the song you sang? Uh, Chanson L'Amour. Yes, it was brilliant. By the Manhattan Transfer. I see. Josh had never heard this song before, but all he had to do was ratatatatat over and over again. <laughs> oh, is it not ratatatatat? No, it's not. Okay. Um, yeah, he did a great job, and indeed, another member of your family got up. In fact, two, two, two your stepbrothers. Yeah, so I, I have got four stepbrothers. It's a very male-dominated family. <laughs> and I can never remember their names, but uh, I remember John. Got a very yeah, good voice, so John very is the oldest. Um, he's very tall. Um, so when I was 10 years old, the first time I met him, and he was 18. I remember looking up and up and up and up and up and thinking, wow. <laughs> he's not quite so tall relative to me now, but he's still tall. Yeah. So he got up to uh, do a backing singing session with uh, his younger brother, Dave. Dave, yeah. Now, the singer, Lola, said, I know your face from somewhere. To Dave. To Dave. And the audience, well, you should do. Who, <laughs> who do you look like? And I shouted out, himself, because <laughs> your stepbrother is... Dave Gorman. Dave Gorman. For listeners of the show of a certain age, an absolute hero to anyone with uh, love of ephemera facts, uh, a very humorous guy, one of, you know, absolute stalwarts of Dave TV and BBC Two and all sorts of shows. Yeah, he's done Radio 4, he's, he's been on, he's done a lot. Well. He's done really well, he's one of the, one of Britain's most beloved comics and uh, his tours sell out very quickly, so there you go, he was there up on stage. In fact, I'll tell you what we're going to do, 
I'll play a few seconds of the brothers <laughs> and Lola the Moor in in action. But John, the old the older brother, he a had an amazing voice, voice yeah, he didn't he? He does an amazing voice. He does. And his moves too. He was sort of sliding across the floor and all oh, sorts. Yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's he obviously <laughs> was in the Royal Navy, you say. He was in the Royal how Navy. Do, how how do, how how does someone that height work in the Royal Navy and go on <laughs> ships with the tiny coffin bunks that they I get? don't know. My word, he must have been in, you know, stooped the whole time of his service. <laughs> anyway, it was a lovely evening. And uh, I will play you a few seconds from the video of them in action. Uh, Dave Gorman, John Gorman, and Lola Lamore. Yes. She's available for weddings and all sorts. In oh, fact, we might even book her for our own. She She's brilliant. I mean, I... I, I was really impressed. When, when I heard it was a vintage singer, I first thought, oh, oh, I don't, no. I'm not going to know many of the songs. She was superb. But they were, I knew them all, and she was brilliant. She worked the room. She yeah, walked around the room. Yeah, very funny. She was, she was a comedian herself, actually. Yeah, yeah, I think. yeah She was yeah. really good. And she plays up on the glamour element, and I have to say from a man's point of view, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there. Let's talk about our guest this week. Uh, we're looking forward to speaking to Andy Hill a little bit later. Uh, A.J. Hill, as he writes. And Andy first submitted to us just over a year ago or so and uh, was one of the unlucky ones that we rejected. And it was really, you know, it was a close run thing. Yeah, very it was close. very close. Uh, but sub- subsequently, you know, dusted himself down and he's been signed by Spellbound. And his first book came out, well, a week today that we record this podcast yes. last week. So we spoke to him on publication day. Dead Drift is the book. It's published by Spellbound, as we say, and Andy will be joining us later. And he is officially the nicest person on the, you know, when you go to a, a circuit event like Harrogate, where mm. we met him first, he's really one of the nicest people you've ever he's met. He's lovely. He's so down to earth, isn't he? And he's Absolutely. so willing to talk to anybody. He's he's a great guy. And I think there's a big audience out there just wishing him well. And yeah, hoping that, we do you know, too. This, the, yeah, absolutely. You know, didn't work out for us, but... You know, we wish him every success and, of course, Spellbound as well. And, uh, you know, we look forward to seeing them at future festivals and sharing a, a drink and talking about the, the trials and tribulations of running. <laughs> the joys in, of publishing. Uh, running an independent publisher, <laughs> which is what we do. Uh, let's get into some news. There's so many good stories around. And uh, I want to, first of all, let's look at the, 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 the big headline story from the bookseller this week, which was looking at the ebook market for the big six publishers in the UK. Mm. Now, those big six are, I'm trying to do this from memory. Go on then. Uh, HarperCollins, Hachette, Penguin Random House, Bloomsbury, uh, Simon & Schuster, and Pan Macmillan. Yes, perfect. Right. And number one in that list of terms of sales of ebooks are Hachette. And one of the things they did is they bought Bookature. Yes, they did, yes. Uh, about four As, years ago. Yeah. And so they've adopted a lot of the digital know-how. Uh, obviously, they've got the titles that came with it uh, but and some of the people. But they've adopted uh, a much more indie approach to selling e-books. And that's really benefited them. But the overall headline was that the entire e-book market dropped by 16% last year, year-on-year mm. year sales. And only one of those publishers had a positive growth, and that was Bloomsbury. Yes. Who I believe have bought Head of Zeus. They did. They bought Head of Zeus, um, I think it was a couple of years ago now. Yeah, um, and that's reflected in their, yeah. their growth digitally. But they weren't in this chart at all two, uh, three years ago. No. So, you know, it's 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 a growth on what? You know, they didn't... Because don't forget, even though they are the publishers of the physical copies of Harry Potter series in mm. the UK, uh, they are not... They didn't sign... J.K. Rowling for the digital rights. They let her have those digital rights. And it's still consistently, the F- Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, et cetera, et cetera, is still a top 10 ebook. Mm. Year on year on year on year. It was a different time, wasn't it? They didn't. It was. They just didn't. But they were snobbish. Let's be honest about it. Everybody I don't was think it's then. just snobbery. I think it's, they just think it's not a moneymaker. They didn't think it was a moneymaker at that time. Mm. It's a long time ago, I, I, I confess, but they didn't sign up. So she's always, that's one of the reasons she is as wealthy as she is, because, mm. you know, those ebooks are worth an absolute ton. Obviously, the film rights and everything else were, went for a lot of money and all the merchandise and everything that she gets a share of. Anyway, the, so the, the other publishers have struggled um, with the, the ebook situation. And that is partly a reflection of just how many ebooks were sold in 2020, the first year of the pandemic. And 
that sort of surge mm. just as we were setting up really and releasing our first books so uh we haven't felt that sort of wave of either drop off or mm. or, or sudden surge of no, growth we, we weren't, in, we weren't in a posi- in no way. we weren't in a position to exploit that but it's interesting that uh, there's been this significant dip personally my my theory is and i have no no <laughs> basis on this but when lockdown started, yes, people turned to ebooks because suddenly they thought, oh, I can't go to buy physical books. Can't, can't even get go. out of the house practically. But then they got to a point where, firstly, they got fed up of looking at a screen because that's all we, all we did all day it was, was work look at from a home and then look at a screen. And so read, yeah. reading a paperback, it, it, it's a relaxing activity compared to reading a screen. And secondly, if it started to feel like a treat, you might order a book to be delivered to you or the, when the bookshop's open, you, you go out and you go to a bookshop because you haven't been for six months or so. And, you know, you suddenly mm. go, oh, you buy real a stack books. Of them. And it's that sort of tactileness of a physical book that I think we felt we'd missed for the first few months of lockdown. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's true. Um, we'll, we'll talk about this later because we're going to reflect on we've been interacting on Facebook with the biggest group of crime fans on the Facebook platform in the uk and asking questions about that and and something else i asked this morning which went a bit bonkers um so if i drift off it's probably because i'm answering yet more comments <laughs> on, on the subject um so that's interesting that's the publishing side of things now on the retail side of things we're really a little sad to hear this but the family who've owned blackwell's books based in oxford and indeed heifers which is the cambridge uh, academic bookshop and in fact they had a, a whole heap of bookshops when i was growing up different types of bookshop they are selling up after yeah. 140 years in charge, and they had hoped to sell the chain and their business to their own employees. Mm. And we were in Blackwell's just, what, four weeks ago, maybe? Yeah, it's only a month. Yeah. And uh, we went down Broad Street into uh, Blackwell's, their big uh, sort of head- headline sort of shop opposite the Sheldonian Theatre. it's massive, isn't it? Is it is massive. Oh, it's lovely. And it's got such a great atmosphere. It's got a slightly higgledy-piggledy nature of it, but it is great. And the staff are incredibly knowledgeable. Um, I, you know, just brilliant. Uh, but it's being sold. And so the thought is that it's most likely that Waterstones are going to steam in and take oh. it. I, I, I'm very fond of Waterstones, but I, my reaction just now when you said that was just sort of like... Mm. Just because Blackwells is different from Waterstones. It is. It has yeah, yeah. its own culture, its own atmosphere, its own... Look, Waterstones do a great job of keeping high street retailing yeah. of books up. And if you've... I've never been, and I want to go to the Bradford one, which is the most extraordinary building ever. It's a bit like the uh, John Rylands Library in, in Manchester, oh, okay. but a bookshop. Uh, it's fabulous. I'm sure some of our listeners know it. Um, I keep seeing it. On social media, you know. Well, the Birmingham one used to be very grand in the centre of Birmingham. It's now an Apple store, but it used to be uh, Waterstones. Right. Yeah, you know, it's a sort of neoclassical building, isn't it, if I remember rightly. But Waterstones, it's owned by a massive hedge fund, um, uh, you know, so in, in the States. So it's quite aggressive. And let's be honest, you know, they, they don't... They, the individual staff who work at Waterstones, in fact, many of the people who work there, they, they're passionate about books. And, and I know a store manager back in Kent who I was at university with, passionate about books. But it's not quite the same as the Blackwell's philosophy. Yeah, just the impression I get from the staff in Blackwell's is they live, breathe, eat everything, books. They, they And yeah. you ask them anything and they will know something. Yeah, yeah. And it's also sort of an intellectual level that they seem mm-hmm. to have an edge mm-hmm. over... So I hope they don't lose that, whatever happens to Blackwells yeah, and Heifers. Absolutely. Um, so that's that's currently uh, out there in the marketplace. We're not in a position to buy it at the moment. Oh, well, maybe not. One day. No, no, no. <laughs> Strangely enough. But uh, one day. And then we'll make it just an independent publishing bookshop. I'll just live in there. Someone should do that. Yeah. S- someone needs to do that. In fact, let's do that. <laughs> I like your snap decisions. Yeah, let's just do it. No, okay. Here's a thought. This is my snap decision. And I am conscious of time because we've got to get one more news story in before we get to (laughs) Andy. Um, And we've got six minutes in which to do it. Why don't we get a marquee? We put it up in the middle of Harrogate during the festival and we just have uh, an indie festival bookshop. So all of the indie publishers that aren't being picked up for Mm -hmm. speaking events 
we could just you know it won't be very far there's a bit of greenery nearby we could we could set up a little pop-up i think we should do it in norbury yeah that might be a struggle <laughs> i mean you've seen the sort of books they sell in the canal shop yes well they're back canals aren't they yeah, barges they are. They are. that's all it's, all it's ever about <laughs> anyway uh, we've got one more f- final story to talk about and this involves Val McDermott. You may have seen this story, but uh, she has until recently been a sponsor of Wraith Rovers, her local football club in Scotland. And she withdrew her um, sponsorship support because the club signed in the January transfer window a player called David Goodwillie, who had Is that been, his real name? Yeah, he'd been found guilty in a civil case, not a not a Crown prosecution case or, you know, Crown against him of rape and uh, it just has totally imploded on the club they have now said that he will not play for the club ever and they're going to terminate his contract but uh, Val was the first to really sort of flag this up and pull her support out so I don't know how much her support is worth it's probably worth a fair bit for a club as small as Wraith Rovers but um, you know she's stuck to her principles and, and, and acted quickly but if he's not to play for that club why is she withdrawing her support from the club? I don't know whether she's now going to put the money back in, but the fact is that she probably, I mean, you know, is shaken by a club that was prepared to sign him in the first place. So there is there is an interesting... I mean, I think that's still to be... Well, just... You know, yeah. Keep watching that space, but uh, that has been the talk of many of the papers. Well, and, there's a lot of badly behaved footballers out at the moment, aren't there? So uh, Yeah. Yeah, and funnily enough, I mean, not funnily, it's not funny at all. Um, we're referring to, of course, the story of Mason Greenwood. Now, we're not going to say much more than that, but the club, Manchester United, my club, I have a Mason Greenwood shirt I bought before the season started, and they've actually offered me a complete swap so I can send it back and choose another player. But the trouble is, A, I think they're all a shower at the moment because they're playing really badly. And uh, my other shirt is a Ronaldo shirt, and he was facing similar allegations in Las Vegas not so long ago. I've just had an idea. What's that? You could have it replaced with Hobeck books. Uh, I think when you go to a football match, you're advertising us. Oh, that's true. Actually, I'd rather have Aki written on the back. <laughs> Aki cat. Aki cat. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's what they're offering. And uh, yeah, my favourite other player has just left the club for a loan move to to Everton. So remind I, me I, who that is. That's Donny Van der Beek. Oh, I don't know that one. No, I haven't told you that one. Donny Van he, never, he never, never, never plays. Oh, okay. Which is why he's left. But I really admire him. I think he's a fantastic player, and I think it's scandalous he's not been used. So yeah, at the moment it's hard to pick a player. It, Aki Cat it is then. Aki Cat it is. All right. Well, let's get to uh, our special guest this week, Andy Hill, with his debut book, uh, debut novel, Dead Drift, which has come out with Spellbound uh, last week. And uh, it's uh, been a long sort of week for him with blog tour. And oh, he's been busy, hasn't yeah, he? We've he seen has. quite a few social media. Absolutely. And um, as I say, we've met Andy. <laughs> I had this very awkward conversation with Andy, actually, um, at Harrogate. I was sitting next to this, you know, he was with some of the people we'd met at Harrogate and been making friends with, like Linda Checkley and, um, uh, you know, um, Donna Morfitt and people D, like that. I and think. D. Grucock, yeah. And um, he was sitting there at the table and we started chatting amiably and I thought this guy looks a bit like uh, Paul in, um, what's his, Paul Nichols Paul Nichols yes from um, um, Just Good Friends Just Good Friends yeah so you I, asked him where Penny was <laughs> I didn't know I, I said I'm sorry we've not met my name's Adrian he said I know who you are I went hang on you're Andy Hill aren't you I went oh I'm so sorry we, we, we turned you down only a matter of weeks before that so um, but he was so good natured yeah, yeah, wasn't yeah, he yeah, yeah. he was absolutely yeah a, delight and 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 very kind so um we are delighted to invite him onto the show and let's speak to from his home in sussex andy hill andy hill thank you so much for joining us because because this is a really special day it's publication day for you it is a bit surreal because this this is my first ever publication day and i suspect it's it's a little bit like having your first child it might be 30 odd years since my eldest daughter was born but I distinctly remember sort of wandering around in a vague daze for at least 24 hours. And, and that's how it's kind of affecting me at the moment. Yeah, a bit unreal. It's such a wonderful thing. I mean, from us as perspective as publishers, we love bringing people 
to print for the first time. I've not done it really. We've done two short stories between us, yeah, for each, yeah, yeah uh, and, and that's apologies. exciting enough. But to to bring a full novel to the world is something else, isn't it? It's funny. I was chatting with a on Messenger with a friend of mine who um, is an old scuba diving buddy who actually produces. Um, short movies with regard to sort of the diving around Gozo and Malta, which is where he lives now. And he he was saying to produce a, a, a you know a decent quality movie and and put the music on is a bit of blood, sweat, and tears. He said, I cannot imagine what putting a novel together is like. You live with the characters for for that period of time. I guess the interesting thing is that I've always tried to listen, you know, to my editor, particularly Katie Forster, um, who has never given me a bum steer. She was really insightful. And I think that that element of trying not to be precious about um, about what you do, take on board what people with a, a more objective point of view can give to you, because you do get so, you know, I mean, the characters in the book to me, because I've lived with them so long and they're they're going to be part of a series are, you know, effectively real people to me. So, you know, it, it does feel when you're doing edits, it does feel a little bit sometimes like you're killing your children. That's true. That's an interesting way to see it, isn't it? Because, yeah, we, I mean, we have experience of uh, we give editorial feedback either from an editor or ourselves to an author. And there's always that moment of if it's if it's quite um, extensive, so not, not necessarily um, bad feedback, but it's suggesting a big change. We have that sort of feeling of hold your breath. How are they going to react? <laughs> yeah, and I, and I think you put it very politely. I call it an oh shit moment. Um, <laughs> but, um, and, it, and it very much happened with Dead Drift in that um, that I thought I was I was coming to the end of what I thought was the final draft, and I was just just about to send the last um, few chapters over to to KT, my my editor, and she she contacted me and said. There's there's a character in the book, Jem, who started who who is um, uh, a female character now, but started life as a male character, and and she came back to me and said, "Do you think Dom, which was the name of the of the the character at the time, might be better as female?" And it's not something that I hadn't considered previously, but I didn't. I, I you know I I went back to her and said, nah, you know if you if you feel it's the right move and it's not just a tick box exercise then i'm not afraid of doing the work and trust me it was a shitload of work um <laughs> but it really was worthwhile and one of the things that she asked me to do was to to do a a character profile of the new, of of this new character and write a a, couple, a few hundred words which I then sent off to her and then she rang me back sort of 24 hours later laughing at me down the phone because I basically stitched myself up, which I, I kind of felt that I had. Um, and, and as I was doing the rewrites and the edits, I just found myself giving that character some extra bits and pieces to do, which was, uh, it just shows the right move completely. Did you begin that editing relationship with her before you joined Spellbound or is this through Spellbound? No, this was this was before. Um, so the 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 MS the manuscript had, had been um, had been written, and then uh, another writer friend of mine, um, John Marley, J. A. Marley, uh, recommended Katie um, as as an editor, and so I went and and had a meeting with her, and we we got on, and there was uh, you know I think it's it, 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 I felt that this was somebody who would be really useful as part and parcel of the collaborative process and got, you know, and got the, um, the characters. She really sorted the manuscript out. And, and the problem is with when you're a, you're a, a debut writer is that you're kind of mentally writing towards this target figure. So, you know, there's lots of descriptive filler mm-hmm. and, and she trimmed probably about 10,000 words out of, of the finished manuscript and guided me with some other bits and pieces in, in terms of you need to sort of ramp this up or you need to take this down or, or, or that. And, she, and yeah, it, 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 she was a, a terrific help to me. The manuscripts that I sent out at the 12 months ago were the edited ones she really sort of helped me with. I look at some of the stuff I've been working on and <laughs> this is the, the the thing I find difficult is that I'm trying to move a character from one place to the other, 
And I find it really hard not to describe what, that journey and try and sort of give it some meaning. Where actually, you just you can cut scenes. People are so used to just jumping between things. You don't need to, uh, in my character's case, describe for the fifth time in the book his walk across Hyde Park. Well, it's interesting you say, you say that because I was listening yesterday to a podcast and they were talking about this, this very thing, saying that often when people start writing, they think they have to describe everything. And they're saying, but if your character um, is at a train station and they're saying, I'm on my way home, and then the next scene, they're home, the reader knows that they've been on that train. They haven't time-travelled to get... True, <laughs> So true. you don't, you yeah. know, there's certain things that you, you actually really do not need to describe, but you, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult thing to get in your head, I think, when you start Yeah, talking. I'm still struggling with that. There was an old joke, wasn't there, about the, the difference between an American writer and an English writer, and the, English, and the American writer man walks into a bar. And the English writer, you know, it's um, it was a 16th century bar, you know, 18th century <laughs> bar with flagstone floor. And they were selling these beers. And from my point of view, there was a necessary am- you know, a- amount of description that was needed because the new forest where the book is set is very much a, a-, a character within the book. But there are people who are going to read the book who've been to the New Forest. And obviously the, the idea is that, that if they've been to the New Forest, there is going to be one or two places that they actually recognise in there and can actually feel themselves within, within that. And um, yeah, you know, the, the interesting thing was, was on the run up to, to publication day today, there's been about half a dozen or so um, little small videos that I've that I've dropped with the help of Spellbound over um, over the last week because it's set in real places in the New Forest there's just little vignettes um, that that were recorded at Conan Doyle's graveside on the River Test and in Lyndhurst and and one or two other places that hopefully will give people a sense of of Jack the main protagonist's world being part of the real world yeah, I think that's really important. I mean, as you say, a lot of people will travel, but then you get in, for a book to be successful, it's going to have international appeal. So giving people the context of where something's set, I think is really important. And they can judge whether you've captured it in your work by what you put up on, online. I think yeah. that's very true. And, and it gives them, yes, it, it sort of puts the images in their head. And also like, like what you said about that place is a character. And this has come up quite a lot in um, interviews we've done, isn't it? When the, mm. the writer said that the place is just as important as all the people in the, in the book. Um, and I think that's very important. Yeah, I mean, you look at Mike Craven's Tilly and Poe books, um, you know, you, you really get the feel of Cumbria, um, you know, when, when they're talking, you know, when he's talking about Poe living in the middle of nowhere. And yeah, you know, I think if you're looking at Rankin, you there you are with Rebus walking the you know, walking the streets of, of Edinburgh, um, and you want to have you want you really want to have that 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 feel of walking with the character through the you know through those through the city or through the through the countryside, whatever it may be. You didn't consider, which a lot of people have done, it's based on where they might live, and they didn't want to necessarily mention places so, by name. like a slightly fictionalized yeah version slightly of a fictionalized place. version of, of of the area in which they're they're writing about you you you, you felt comfortable going for well, that I, yeah I, I i did because i mean and part of it was that i i had a little look and saw that there wasn't that much crime fiction based in the new forest other than than matt arledge's eeny meeny uh series and matt in actual fact is um is is sort of a little vague about where it is in the new forest if you know the forest well you can make assumptions and, and sort of tie it down but if you're if you're not acquainted with the new forest then you, you wouldn't necessarily know where it is whereas i i thought no damn it i'm going to be really specific i've changed one or two things um in, in terms of the indian restaurant in lindhurst is not called by that name it's actually called a passage to india and <laughs> the the local pub isn't called the Blue Lamp, even though it's only 40 yards away from the local Nick. It's actually called the Waterloo Arms. You know, I wanted the fact that there are millions and millions of people who go and have a day trip to the New Forest every year. And I wanted them to be able to immediately relate to exactly where it was. So when they're, you know, if they, if, you know, if I'm lucky enough to have a reader who's driving through Lindhurst, they can go, wow, this is where Jack Lund lives. 
I write as AJ Hill, but I don't have a middle name. Um, and and when I was when I was talking it over with the publishers, um, and and initials seemed to be a bit of a thing at the moment with with a lot of authors. And they said, oh, you know, how about how about initials? What's your what's your second name? And I said, well, I don't have a second name. My my parents came from Yorkshire, uh, Yorkshire and Lancashire, and were too mean to buy me a, um, a, a second. Name. <laughs> um, being sensible northern folk and fond of a penny, they said, "Well, okay, so what was your dad's name?" And I said his name was Albert, but I can't be A. A. Hill, too close to A. A. Gill or A. A. Exactly, Mill. Exactly. Yeah, it's the first thing you think uh, of, isn't it? <laughs> so they said, "You know, what about a nickname? Uh, you know, were you know?" And, and my nickname at, at school was Jack. Um, and so that's where that's that's where the J came from, but it's also where Jack's name came from. Um, and then the Lun is there's there's a fly pattern called Lun's particular. So I just ruthlessly stole the Lun from <laughs> from there, <Why> and <laughs> I just thought it was quite nice and short and punchy and um, not complicated. So yeah, that worked for me. Now that's that's a, that's a very good point, isn't it? Because we we've come across names. Authors have given their characters names that you can't. <laughs> You stumble over each time you try and read it. Yeah, we've got a got one where it's a very strong Irish name, but I actually had to go and start looking up and how you yeah. do it. Because in my head, I couldn't read the manuscript and get anywhere near how it should be pronounced. So it is, it is a Jack. Yeah, Jack Lund. That's got a, <laughs> that has got a good Anglo-Saxon sort of, yeah, no-nonsense kind of appeal to it, I think. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Let's let's touch on that, on your career path, because it's it's, you know, I think, would it be unfair to say you've had a bit of a portfolio career over the years in terms of you've done various things and maybe moved on every decade yeah. or something different? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I've worked in por- I've worked in property for the last sort of thirty plus years now, but my, uh, you know, um, I I came I went from university into Her Majesty's Customs and Excise and worked in in VAT for about eighteen months and then in uniform. Um, on rummage crews and mobile task forces for about three and a half years. And I got engaged towards the end of, of that period. And it, it, you know, part of part of that process was um, then to find something that gave me more regular hours, because particularly on rummage crew, um, yeah. you're on you're on 24 hour call out. And so that's why I, I ventured into the police. And, you know, I I only lasted a couple of, uh, you know, less than a couple of years there, or coming up on a couple of years. Uh, but my experience within it has left me with nothing but admiration for the work that they do. And whilst it wasn't for me, particularly the police these days, they have such a, an unbelievably more difficult job than I ever had back in the days of a wooden truncheon and a, and a top hat. <laughs> uh, and literally, you had to run with one hand on your helmet. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and and the other hand on your on your radio because both would fly off otherwise. Um, but um, yeah, it, it, you know, they, I, there was no stab vests and asps and um, and tasers and stuff like that back in my day, and no computers. Didn't police and, have and, a whistle? And, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah they had a whistle, and that's what yeah. telephone box the police boxes were yeah. for. So yeah, they, you know, absolutely. they saw something and they needed backup. They would go and use the phone. Yeah, yeah. you know, you knew all the taxi taxi offices to go to where you could get a free cup of tea and sit and have a smoke quietly so you know you know you you know you get to know these these things and I was I was stationed down in Dorset which was you know pretty pretty quiet during the winter but really busy during the summer um but yeah then um I worked in retail for a little while and um I I actually qualified as as a mortgage advisor but actually found out that I enjoyed selling houses to people more um, and worked for 14 years in a, as an estate agent and then got my soul back and um, moved into property <laughs> management. And yeah, yeah. I've worked, I, you know, I worked for a big, big company up in that are based up in London with large investment landlords like Guys and St. Thomas's Foundation. Yeah, they're a good company to work for. And I, and I spent the last basically two years working from home. Course. so you can write in your free time <laughs> well that's the i've got to be honest rebecca it, it, it's a two-edged sword in, t- in terms of in terms of i you know five days a week i spend eight nine hours parked in front of uh, a laptop and screen working um uh, and to um and to then try and write afterwards can be really really difficult yeah whereas i come away from my office in brighton drive across the downs 
leave all of that baggage behind and be able to come home and actually write for an hour or two. It's that's getting that separation is really quite difficult at times. So, yeah, it, it you know, it, it you know, I, I live um, in a little cottage in the middle of nowhere on a quiet lane where, to be honest, I get more horses going past than I do cars. And my my garden, I literally can turn my head and see the birds on my bird feeders. I've got fields and then woods beyond. And, and it, you know, it, there's no straight lighting or anything down here. Mm. and the thing that woke me up this morning was actually the pheasants in the field opposite croaking away now in terms of you know drawing together all those things you've done how much do they inform the characters in, in terms of jack and, and and the other people that you've you the world you've created oh gosh well you know i uh, i i think there's a there's a good proportion there's a there's a good portion of me in jack that's the first thing that i would say i've stuck in with a divorce i've stuck in with a dodgy knee and and the joke is that i'm twice the man that he is because i've had two divorces and both my knees are dodgy um, <laughs> so, but but you know the fly fishing thing um that yeah that, um that is his kind of recreational passion is certainly a passion of mine too i don't tie flies like he and jem do um, but I really enjoy my fly fishing. So that was that was something. And and indeed, you know, he loves to cook and I love to cook. So they, there was that part of it um, and him living in a living in a place that I'd live. Um, uh, uh, other aspects. No, I, you know, I wasn't in, you know, I wasn't in the force. Um, I wasn't a detective, um, uh, you know, for, for that period of, of time. I think he's more um, single minded than I am. Um, yeah. I think he and and you know that can be seen as both a strength and a weakness. There's this sort of idea that oh you know all of them have to be be flawed characters. Well, the reality is we're all flawed characters. We're all flawed yeah. people. Mm. You're never going to present a protagonist that's perfect. And Jack is you know Jack is not perfect. He has some wonder you know he has some lovely qualities, um, but he's also you know he can be. Um, completely blinkered at times. That was kind of my motivation for for him having some character aspects and flaws that are mine makes him easier to write and hopefully makes the, um, you know, particularly the the, the exposition and, and banter between um, him and, and the, some of the other characters a bit more realistic. Yeah, yeah, because you can imagine yourself, even though you're not the same person, but you can imagine yourself in that situation and what you'd say and how you'd react to some yeah, degree. Exactly that. I have a random. And, question. It's not. It's not the random what? question. God, but... it's <laughs> two random questions. <laughs> do you own a copy of Fly Fishing by J.R.R. Hartley? I I do not. But I do own several fly fishing books. There was not not as many as books. As I do um, cookbooks, I own a lot of complete angler. Yeah, Isaac Walton. Because Isaac Walton (laughs) was—he was from very close to where we live. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he used to pass his. He was indeed. Yeah, his cottage. Neither of neither of those do I own, Um, but I do own a number of other. They're more (laughs) to do with fly fishing and and yeah techniques and stuff like that because I bought them when I was starting to learn. We've rubbed shoulders at Harrogate. We met for the first time and. You know, and uh, have you been sort of regular at the, the festival scene? I got the impression you, you had, but that was only my second time to Harrogate. Um, but I, um, but Crime Fest was, you know, I think in probably in about ten or eleven years, I've only ever missed two Crime Fests, and it was the first big one that I went to, um, and and I I loved it so much. And yet the first time I went, I was like nobody's going to talk to me you know the you know authors are all going to be you know standoffish and and you know unless you know it's going to be very clicky and whatever but the thing I found out particularly about the crime and thriller bunch is that they are the most warm friendly crowd and uh, you know my theory is that that um all the all the anger and hate is on the page and what's left is the love so how will it feel Come uh, when I mean May is it May? Oh, yeah, Prime Fest. Yeah, uh, are you going to this one? Yeah, I'm already booked. Yeah, how will it feel walking in as a published author? That's going to feel. It will feel a bit odd, and and I guess because they had to cancel last year, they've held a lot of the panels sure. over, 
Um, so the chances, you know, the chances of me getting a panel there are, are zero, which is a shame because it would have been lovely um, to have got a uh, to have uh, been a debut author and got a panel there. But you know, to to actually walk in as a, a published author will be an extraordinary thing. And I was I was talking to to somebody a couple of weeks ago, and they said, you know, oh, you know, if it was anybody in the, you know, anybody at all to read your book, who would who would you want to read your book? And it would be my dad. I mean, you know, my dad would be the most the person that I would have wanted to have read my book. And he was a headmaster. He was a very good sportsman, and I was a you know I was a decent sportsman, played rugby for the county and and um, South England trials and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. And he would have been he would have been pretty chuffed with the sporting achievements. But I think to have been a published author really would have given him a buzz. Yeah. Right. Well, I think it's time for you to face the ultimate challenge in <laughs> right. And I'm going to give it the build up, okay? And sometime at this time this week, we're going to I'm going to put reverb on it, so it's going to sound really dramatic, okay? But oh, I'll, very I'll, here exciting. We go, here we go. <laughs> Rebecca's random question: What is the one song that gets you on the dance floor more than any other song? With dodgy knees. I think a, cl- I, you know, I think, and I think this one is a classic that pretty much anybody, particularly of my age group and I suspect of yours as well will would instantly recognize and be able to do it oops upside your head yeah just about yeah I probably have to wait a minute for people doing it then I'd get back into the rhythm of it but yeah yeah Yeah. Yeah. but every everybody knows it as the rowing boat song but right yeah I think I think I think that that one particularly I there are so many though Clubs weren't clubs when I went clubbing. They were discos. Yes. So that tells you how old I am. You know, there were some great tunes out there. But they, I think there's, you know, even now, um, there's still some great tunes out there. But, um, I, you know, I get, you know, I can go Faithless, anything by Faithless. Yeah, I'm up there. I like, I like a bit of club, you know, sort of 90s, 90s early 2000 clubbing music. Um, I think anything really that's got an infectious beat and just gets you going. Funny enough, we were talking. We were talking the other day about artists, and um, we, we touched briefly on on Neil Young taking his stuff off Spotify. And I'm a big Neil Young yeah. fan. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and back what he's done. I'm actually in the process of moving all my um, music from Spotify to a, a different source, um, and will close down my Spotify um, uh, because you know if that. It's it might be a small and useless protest, but I feel good about it. But Bowie, you know, I'm a huge Bowie fan. Me too. Um, and yeah, I mean, let's dance. Um, you know, everything from from um, uh, fall, the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust up until Dark Star two days before he died. I thought the guy was a musical genius. He was. He, I think he Apart was a from genius. Tim Machine, it was just brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that was a bit. I went to <laughs> experimental Tim Machine live, and it was uh, yeah, it was. It was hard. It was hard. And I also went on the Glass Spider tour. Yeah, I saw Glass Spider and, and Serious Moonlight. And I was... Yeah, Serious Moonlight was know, a great tour. Oh, fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Glass Spider was a bit, yeah. of a, a bit of a misstep. Um, you know, theatre in a stadium doesn't quite work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no. But, um, you know, I'm not going to knock him. He, he was genius. But, uh, yeah, Tim Machine was, 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 was hard. But the thing about him, though, is he wasn't afraid to try anything that he thought well, I mean, was something different to try. My favourite quote of his is, you know, that you know you're doing something right when, you know, it's like swimming and you can't touch the bottom. You know, you go just to the point where you can't touch the bottom and that's what you're trying to do creatively the whole time. Yeah. And I think that's... Oh, gosh, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I... I yeah, the, he was. He, if you like, supplied a lot of the, the sort of um, the music of my youth. Um, yeah. And um, he, I, you know, I, I'm just going to try and find this quote that I got from him that I uh, thought was absolutely apropos. Um, you have to forgive me scrolling through. Here we go. Aging is an extraordinary process where you become the person you always should have been. Yeah. Mm. yeah. And I just thought, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's that that's really, yeah. That, you know, and 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 I think maybe this last couple of years in the pandemic um has given us that opportunity to be a little bit more reflective, um, to be a little bit more grateful for the things that we actually have. 
I particularly found it an opportunity to have a little bit of self-care and and um, reassessment, which has been great. I've got to ask Bex, what's the tune? What well, they'll get me on the dance floor? Yeah. Trying to think. So when I used to go to nightclubs, they were sort of nightclubs in our yeah younger years. Yeah, they? they'd moved on from disco to nightclubs. Right. Probably something by the Smiths, I have to say. Yeah. Because, you know, everyone else will be heading for the, the, the seats That's what I was say, or the bar. Say, I've got... You'd be the one person up doing the Smiths, yeah, or the Cure or something like that. <laughs> I have a, a friend of mine who's a DJ, and he said that if it's not going well and people aren't gelling very well and they're not dancing and they're not reacting, there's one song he knows is guaranteed to get people on the dance floor. What's that? Dancing Queen. Yeah, that's true. By Abba. Yeah. That's true. That was always, yeah. always a fair say. All the women, they just, they just, bicker, they run for the dance floor as soon as he starts playing it. I think I've told this story on the podcast before, but I DJed the end of tour party for Torval and Dean in the mid 90s. And oh, wow. so, yeah. So they were holding this thing. They, they'd just been playing the West Point, which is a big barn in Exeter. And the Ukrainian all dance, uh, I dancing stars or whatever they were called all stars uh were sitting around looking miserable and they had various <laughs> bits of tractor machinery and stuff like that that were taking back to their farms uh and their, their families back in you know it was very they, they all looked they were all pouting uh Torvaldine themselves had a massive stand-up row um God. and the only thing i could do to get anyone dancing because no one was shifting they obviously knackered after a long tour and they've been ice skating and all this sort of thing probably covered in bruises and all sorts of things that had gone on i put on ride on time <laughs> by black box oh yeah and that was just you know you, it, it, the whole party just suddenly lifted yeah follow that yeah. up with a bit of bgs so you just take one song you, yeah it's something from saturday night fever you cannot lose those <laughs> yeah. are those will get to you know dancing queen that's the that's the hydrogen bomb of getting the dance floor filled i mean that's the that's the, the you know your last resort really if you're really really failing get dancing queen on but those yeah. things work so uh yeah, that was. Well, one of the most bizarre discos I've ever been to was it was a really small venue about the size of our living room, and the DJ was Mike Joyce from the Smiths. Excellent. And oh, when wow. he put the Smiths on, everybody went bananas. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping it wasn't Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now. <laughs> I think he did play that actually at some point. Yeah. <laughs> That's some good upbeat oh, ones. Well. Yeah, um, no, it was, it, was, it was really good fun. So, um, Dead Drift is out. AJ Hill, yeah. Andy Hill. Uh, it's uh, it's such an exciting time, I know. Um, we, one final question, really, is in terms of subsequent books, where are you with, you know, book two, three, whatever? So, yeah, book two um, is tentatively titled Bloody Butcher. Um, and um, that will be Jack Lund 2. Uh, it's about 60,000 words in. Um, so I've got about another 30,000 and it's projected to be out um, the latter end of the summer. Wow. Okay, oh, wow. good, Gosh. good, good. So PDQ. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, yeah, there's, there'll, there'll, be a, there'll be a third um, uh, with Spellbound and then um, hopefully they might renew my contract. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. As ever, Andy, it's always a great pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. And we will see you at Crimefest, we? We will see you at Fantastic. <laughs> yeah, that'll be great. Look forward to it. Thank you so Cheers. much for having me on. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. So Dead Drift out on ebook and paperback. And we wish Andy every success with it. And, uh, you know, we wish every debut author. I mean, it's such an exciting time, isn't it? Yeah. It I, is, I'm still waiting it? for the chance to do that myself. But actually, <laughs> if I got my act together and started writing, that would be great. Well, you've been talking about it a bit today. So I have. I have. Yeah. I've. I've I was thinking, well, we were talking earlier about, uh, and we will hear from her later, uh, Lola Lamour. <laughs> He's very taken with Lola Lamour. I am rather, yeah. Look, I mean, she's an expert on uh, 40s fashion. Um, she's passionate about it. It's on her website about how much she loves that period. And I need somebody to, as a consultant on 40s fashion for, for ladies, because I'm writing a story which, for which that plays a, a significant role. So uh, I'm quite rather excited. I haven't approached it yet, but... <laughs> you only thought of it a couple of hours ago. Yeah, I know. That's, that's my life, isn't it? I just keep these ideas fizzing to my head. And <laughs> I've, now I've said it, I'm going to have to do it. So that's, that's, that's key. But no, it was, um, that was a useful thing. So that was last night's party. I say, uh, Dave Gorman, 
in action <laughs> at the microphone to come. And my dad, my dad too. He 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 was very good sport about getting up on he was. singing and dancing and um. So yeah, I mean, he had he had a constant smile on his face. I think he had a really really good evening. Because he's not been very well recently, has he? So um, no, it meant he, a lot to him. It did mean a lot to him, and yeah, he is not well. And um, you know, the treatment's working pretty well considering. But you know, it's, yeah. uh, occasions like this, you know, there aren't going to be that many more. And there's so. not that not that many occasions when uh, they get the whole family together, and they did. They had everybody, you know, both sides. So. Uh, three children on my dad's side, four children on my uh, stepmum's side, and all the add-ons and grandchildren, and you know, yeah. <laughs> all the it bits and really, bobs. <laughs> really sweet occasion, really sweet. Um, now this week, uh, sort of, we had a conversation with uh, last week's guest Dan Morgan, and he was brilliant, wasn't he? I mean, we, we're talking. He's based in Canada now, and uh, if you haven't read his blog on Medium, just go there because it's almost every day, and it's just such amazing slabs of wisdom really mm. an honest appraisal of the indie scene and, and how to sell books and things like that so we had a really interesting conversation we've been obviously thinking a lot about the way we organize ourselves and and, and our, the emphasis that we put on certain things and whether it's still the best practice or not so that set us off thinking and one of the things he suggested is that we really you know promote Hoback a little bit by getting more involved in some of the facebook groups that love crime fiction and so i've really just been down the word, the rabbit hole. You have hole. a little bit, haven't you? Yeah, um, with UK Crime Book Club, which has twenty one thousand or so followers. But they're such a lovely bunch they of are. people. They're wonderful, and some great authors there on there commenting, and some of our own. Um, you know, I've seen plenty of comments from from our team, like Jonathan Peace as well, and Brian, uh, and Brian. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Brian Price, it's it's been really fantastic. And uh, I posed this morning a question of. How do I improve my reading speed? Because I've always been regarded, and I always regarded myself as a very slow reader. And I have to give credit to one of the members of the group who suggested that if you're left eye dominant, then you can only read one word at a time. It makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you think about the way your left eye would have to scan yeah. each line. I am left eye dominant. I did a test a few couple of years ago trying to improve my darts and there was a series of things you know you cover up your eyes individually and whatever and it turns out yeah i'm left eye dominant i think i must be right eye dominant because my left eye is my lazy eye yeah right. so. okay so i can't i can't read any quicker than than actually taking it one word at a time mm. rather than some of the people who are mentioning in this and there hundreds of comments it's amazing um are able to absorb pages almost at first glance. Yeah, that's almost photographic memory, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit, yeah. But far, far quicker than, than I am at reading. And, uh, you know, it's always bugged me because one of the things we used to be said at homework as a at primary school was go home and read 60 pages of X. They would always say that, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah read yeah. so I many couldn't pages. do it. It would take me hours to read 60 pages. Well, that would be my ideal homework. I'd love it. I'd just go oh, and yeah. hide under the dining room table and do my homework. I just remember when we were 10 years old and Lord of the Rings was a massive phenomenon amongst my peer group at that time. And that was the time when they brought out the radio production on Radio 4 with Michael Horden's Gandalf. Uh, it was amazing. Um, and the competitions people used to have get racing through the trilogy of books. <laughs> uh I would always be stuck on the Fellowship of the Ring and everyone else had finished the rest of them because they just could read so much quicker. I think at my school, we did that with Adrian Mole's diary. Yeah. <laughs> Not quite so highbrow, but... Yeah, I can understand that. But anyway, that was an interesting debate. We also brought up the, the subject this week of the ebook drop-in sales for the Big Six. And, you know, interesting getting the insights of how people regard ebooks or uh, versus physical copies. Mm. And, yeah, there's a real need for physical copies amongst that that particular See, that i found very interesting social group, really yeah because i i kind of assume that crime readers generally are ebook readers because of there's so many self-published and independent crime writers but what was indicated in that conversation that actually the emphasis is more on physical books for a lot of these readers yeah it, but then there was a, deba majority. a separate debate about the cost of books and it was a pretty heated debate, as you can imagine, and a lot of 
us from the publishing side of things uh, explaining where the costs were because people assume that all oh, you have to do is write the book, stick it on the thing, and it costs you nothing to have it on an online platform, which is not true. Um, first of all, that two ninety nine price, for instance, which was being moaned about as being too expensive, um, 70% comes to you. Mm. If you're a solo author, that's not too bad, really, because it's just over two quid. But to get people to buy your book, how much are you spending on marketing? And very often it's very much more than the, the, the royalty you're getting. And also you've invested in editing. Yes. You may have invested in, it might only be an ebook cover, but not everybody does it themselves. So no. probably, in fact, not many do, I think. No. You, so you, you could have invested up to four or five thousand pounds already. Oh, yeah. Before you even publish it. Yeah. So you need to. And there's your that. time. I mean, you know, this is A, your creativity and B, your time. So why do people think it's okay? to demand that everything comes down to 99p and we have had a book this week and it's as we speak coming just coming off a 99p promotion with silence from jenny Enser. and i have to say you know you can shift a whole load of books at 99p but there's next to no revenue from it mm. um and so th- th- it's a big debate but I, I i do appreciate that some of the people who were corresponding in in the the uh, the group uk crime book club were saying a lot of the traditional publishers have shoved up their prices on ebooks to almost the price of a paperback. And that's true, they have. Yeah, five ninety nine, six ninety nine, seven ninety nine. As we've already reflected last week, you know, our, the cost of our production rate at Clay's is now twenty percent higher for a print run of books uh, than it was three months ago. And I'm sorry to say, frankly, everything is going up as we know. I mean, it's been absolutely a, well, an apocalypse of the, the living standards crisis in the UK yeah. has, has overwhelmed so many people. And that is going to affect, obviously, sales. So a lot of people gravitating, I think, towards Kindle Unlimited, sort of holding their noses while they use a screen as opposed to a physical book. Yeah. But it does mean they get access to a lot more for it's very good value at whatever it is. To be yeah, an Amazon, and you get Kindle Unlimited as an Amazon Prime member. And also, I mean, Audible. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that's as good value because you're only getting one book. Okay. And depending on the length. Um, what a lot of people have, we've talked about this before, have been handing back their audiobooks having listened to them uh, mm. and then getting a refund. And this was causing, you know, everyone who was making audiobooks via Audible weren't getting any money, which was ridiculous. Some people were in minus territory. It's, it's shocking. You know, to actually owe money. I would never do that. Even if I didn't like the book, they, I would never do that. They are tremendous value at audiobooks. Because, I mean, the full price audiobook production when they were in CDs, well, you know, a four CD pack would cost you 30 quid. Yes. Yeah, I remember getting them from service stations. On yeah. The... As a, I mean, as I know, having, you know, closed the production on Waking the Tiger by Mark Whiteman this week, and also we've seen uh, Catch as Catch Can go up on Audible uh, this week as well. Those productions took me months. And um, it's, a, it's hard work. It's hard, very hard work. Very hard work. Well, we'll hear from, uh, when are we speaking to Diane, Diane Perry, by the way? Um, actually, next week. So our guest next week, we ought to mention this, is Diane Perry. Diane Perry is uh, an American. Uh, she's based in London. She is a voiceover artist and expert, written a great book about voiceover and narration. Uh, we're really excited about speaking to her. But one of the things she did early on well, she discovered that narrating audiobooks wasn't for her. Yeah. She gives a lot of good advice about how to do it, but she didn't have she the... She just doesn't want to do it herself. No, doesn't want to be stuck with it project for as long as it takes. Because it's really, really hard work. Yeah, yeah. I'll read it. Well, she can tell us next week. But uh, So Diane Perry joining us next week as our guest here on the Hobcast Book Show. We ought to wrap things up. We've got another busy week, hopefully... At least one of our cars will be fixed. Well, yeah, so you're having your car fixed tomorrow, with any luck. And we'll get yours in uh, to get whatever caused them total failure of the, the car. Well, it was some sort of freak electrical... Yeah, freak electrical glitch that meant that the dashboard didn't work. It just it shows how much... A small a, issue. A car these days relies on the electrics. Ab- well, not so much on the electronics, actually. It was an electronic fault more than an electric one. Oh, is that different? What's the difference? Yeah, because one of the chips was, was started. Now, what's the difference between electrics and electronics? They're kind of related, but the electronics, because a lot of cars, one of the biggest problems for the supplier cars, and oh, we've gone down a rabbit hole now, 
in the in the world at the moment is a lack of chips for the central processing units of cars or ECUs as they're called that you get in cars. So most cut modern cars, well, they all have quite a lot of processing power, un, literally under the bonnet, that affect all the different systems. So if something goes wrong, it's not just a fuse going, it's usually a chip. So you remember I had a problem with my car, my Honda Jazz, and I had to have a whole new sort of brain put into it, which they got from Latvia. Brain surgery. Yeah. Anyway, let's Talking of chips, you wouldn't believe how many chips I found in the back of my car the other week. I, I would. <laughs> let's, let's leave it for that. Let's get to uh, what we've all been waiting for, which is an opportunity to hear the wonderful Lola Lamore, accompanied by John and Dave Gorman from last night. <laughs> we'll leave you with that. Have a happy and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Indie Spirit.